This is Teaching Otherwise, a podcast exploring teaching in psychology. Welcome to episode five. In this episode, we're joined by Donna Tafreshi to discuss the possibilities and challenges in teaching quantitative methods and measurement as interpretive practices. This is the Teaching Otherwise podcast. I'm Brady Wiggins. I'm Josh Clay. I'm Joseph Austinson. And we have as our guest today, Donna Tafreshi. Um, Donna, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your research interests and particularly the topic we um, are here to discuss today related to interpretation in quantitative research and measurement. Sure, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so I guess my interests kind of lie in the area of methodology, epistemology, as well as language use and how that ties into how we teach methods and how we do methods and um, how we come up with methodology as well. Um, so in particular, much of my current position involves teaching. So I currently work at an institution where I'm primarily uh, a teaching faculty. So I'm teaching many courses. And so I, I tend to think about teaching quite a bit. Um, and given my background, I tend to teach methods courses, especially quantitative uh, methods courses, as I also have a background in statistics. Um, so I guess all of these things kind of come together for me. Uh, and lately, I've really been interested in interpretation and the role of interpretation in using methods, but also in teaching students about methods, um, whether we should even talk about interpretation in, in methods courses, which I do tend to do, um, but also what the benefit of that might be and how we might go about doing it. Um, I guess my interest in this, uh, I, I've, I've always kind of been interested in my own interpretative role as a researcher. I can recall from early on as an undergrad student, um, carrying out like an honors thesis, I always really struggled with my own power over the research project. So I recall one of the first projects that I ever worked on, I was observing mothers and infants uh, interacting with one another and I was quantifying the interaction. So I was using a coding manual to rate how sensitive the mothers were to their infants. And I really struggled with this because I, I often felt like I, first of all, shouldn't be in the position of rating these mothers, but. I often struggled with the coding manual, you know, what's a one versus a two versus a three in terms of how sensitive a mother is. And I, I think that sort of is the beginning of when I started to think about problems with uh, not only maybe the process of quantification or what we might call measurement in psychology, but also how interpretation plays a role in the research process. And I was trained as a, you know, um, a traditional psychology undergraduate student. And so I often felt that I should do my best to not interpret. So I should always do my best to try to let numbers speak for themselves and to, you know, be as objective as I possibly can be when I'm pinning those numbers on the interactions that I'm observing. And I think just over time, as I struggled with this, I started to really question it. And I started to become more interested in learning about why we do things the way we do in psychology and what sorts of assumptions I'm making about knowledge and how knowledge is created through my methods when I take this kind of approach. And so that's kind of led me to where I am today where I 
really do try to emphasize um, interpretation in the methodological process to my students because I wonder if they also struggle with the same things that I did when I was an undergrad student um, and maybe they just don't want to ask because I never asked. Um, but I also think that it's our duty really as researchers as you know uh, to to really ask the tough questions and, and to uh, be critical um, and to teach our students to be critical as well. I really like that example of you struggling with the coding manual <laughs> because we tend to talk about um, measurement and um, data analysis as if once numbers are attached, it's somehow non-interpretive, it's objective. And that mm -hmm. dilemma of um, how can I minimize or eliminate the interpretation in my work rather than give the best interpretation really is a, a striking difference, I think, from where you were starting to, where it sounds like you're beginning to think about it more as inherently interpretive. Is that right? Yeah, um, I think that I started to realize that, I mean, there's interpretation at every single level of the process. I mean, from the person who created the coding manual, they had to, you know, they're obviously a part of some community and they're familiar with the common discourse within that community around sensitivity and what it means for a mother to be sensitive. And so they're um, engaging in interpretation um, when they're developing that manual, you know, interpretation of the concepts that they're using, such as sensitivity and responsiveness and what we might look for in an interaction. Um, and then once I, as the researcher, receive that manual, I have to interpret what they have interpreted and you know, I have to watch the interactions and I have to somehow match it up with these categories. And so I think I just was overwhelmed with this interpretative process that I really hadn't been given any tools to deal with. You know, my one tool that I had was be as objective as you possibly can be and go back to the coding manual and make sure that that's what you're following. Um, and I personally really struggled with that. I think part of why we have been interested in this question is because of that lack of tools, right? I mean, the, mm -hmm. I feel like when I try to teach my students in methods classes to think about their role as a researcher in interpreting and, and making all of the research design choices they have to make, that, that I'm constantly swimming upstream, you know, against mm -hmm. the current because everything else they have learned, including in the text that they usually read, and in their other classes is telling them, like you said, be objective, like yeah. take yourself out of the process. When, when they, I think, know instinctively that they can't actually do that, you know, you're there, but they don't have any tools, any tools to, to put themselves back in. And not only themselves, but the other researchers that they're reading about, how do they put the interpretation back into the, to this whole research story? So, so yeah, I'm mean, part of what we hope to talk about today are strategies for for teaching in a way that gives them and us more of these tools. Yeah, I totally like what you said there about how I, I see how the students do struggle with this, but maybe they feel like they shouldn't say anything because, you know, they're they're You know, I teach a qualitative methods course as well. And it's so interesting to me how students in that class, it's almost like they feel like they've been freed, like they're able to just think about these things that maybe they were told that they, you know, should not uh, be very open and explicit about in a quantitative methods course because they couldn't talk about some of the, their own assumptions in the research process or they couldn't reflect on their own biases and 
and how they might have connected to the research participant in the interview that they did. You know, it was supposed to be a very structured one-way interview in the quantitative methods course, whereas in the qualitative methods course, they're actually talking about things like the relationship between them and the person that they interviewed. And it's, you know, it gets messy and complicated. And I think there are things in that process that are difficult as well, but it's almost like they're, it's, it's like they've been freed from something. I don't know how to explain it, but it's, you know, it's, um, I, I can see in, in them this sort of, uh, yeah, like they feel like, yeah, I've been thinking this stuff, but I just didn't know how to articulate it. And it makes so much sense that, you know, I, I should be reflecting on my interpretative power. Yeah, I've seen that, that sense of being freed in students as well, like, yeah. even in small ways, like when I give them permission to write in first person. I mean, that seems yeah. like a small thing, yeah, but they totally. feel like, really, I can say the word I, like, I, I'm, I can admit that I exist. Like even little things like that, or you know, bigger things where where I'm giving, I'm not only giving them permission, but I'm like requiring them to talk about why they're doing what they're doing and what it means mm-hmm. to them and in right in their research reports in first person. And yeah, really, it does. They've you know explicitly commented this semester about that. Some of my students like like that it was freeing. They never thought they could you know think about themselves as part of the research. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it seems to really ease a paradox that might be hidden in that mandate to be objective, right? Because especially mm-hmm. as a beginner, um, there's an unavoidable self-consciousness that you feel trying out a skill for the first time. You know, what am I supposed to do? Am I getting this right? Um, the, the subject is so present and um, to, to have to act as if it's not, or even just the fact of your subjectivity already being a problem, um, mm-hmm. it, it can feel so overwhelming. Um, and, you know, it's not that the subjectivity wasn't there, that it ever goes away, but it seems like a lot of seasoned researchers have figured out how to maybe settle on a, a tacit, unacknowledged subjectivity that um, follows the unwritten rules. I'm not quite sure how to put it, that, that with that expertise that comes, eventually maybe it becomes less um, uncomfortable in that self-conscious way that these beginning students are experience it, experiencing it. But, but what a moment in that self-consciousness to recognize the dilemma that perhaps our um, field hasn't really been confronting. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I mean, think that... we have, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Josh. <laughs> I'm just gonna say, I think that's part of why this question is really important is that hidden inside of all that tacit, you know, subjectivity that we are pretending like we are removing, but in fact remains are, you know, all of the kinds of uh, um, wrongs really that psychologists have been guilty of historically. They're all, they're all um, hidden under that fog of object, you know, pretended objectivism. And so this is important, not just because we need to give our students, you know, skills to, to address their own subjectivity in research, but because that subjectivity is always there. And it, if we pretend like it's not, it's very easy to smuggle in all kinds of biases um, you know, we talked about Thomas Teo, right? He's written about that mm-hmm. in the context of epistemological violence, the way that we can smuggle racism in under ob- objectivism, right? Yeah. So that's another reason why we need these tools. It's, it's sort of an ethical imperative to interrogate that subjectivity and recognize the biases and values that, that lie hidden inside of it. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the examples that I really like to use with my students that really um, seems to uh, hit the nail on the head um, is just in the interpretation of a very technical concept in statistics, which is the mean. Uh, so, you know, in statistics, you can define the mean really technically as the average, right? You can define it mathematically, you know, your values observed divided over the total number of observations, and that's fine. So it has a technical definition in the language of statistics, but when it's used in the context of research practice by, you know, people who are inevitably going to be, you know, self-interpreting and interpreting of their uh, research study and, and the world around them, the mean is given meaning <laughs> uh, in many different ways and has been in the history of psychology. So the example I use is, you know, we'll talk about Adolf Quayle, who uh, talked about, um, pardon my French, La Moyenne, I'm probably butchering it, but you know, the average man. Um, so the idea that the mean represents the ideal, the average, and any deviations from the mean should be eliminated or they, they don't matter, they are literally error. So I think, you know, uh, Quayle, he described it as if, you know, God had taken aim at the ideal and he had just missed a bunch of times. And so you end up with these deviations around the mean, but the mean is what's ideal, you know, in terms of the height of, you know, a man or the weight of a man in society. And that's really what we should focus on. Um, so really Quayle was interested in making claims that were true on average because for him, the average was what mattered. Deviations around the mean were unimportant. Uh, and then you have you know, people like Francis Galton being very inspired by Quayle's work, but taking a very different interpretation of the mean where for Galton, it was the variation around the mean that was important. You know, For him, it signified the fact that there's progress, that you know, evolution, it, it was sort of like a confirmation of evolutionary theory, the idea that because we have variation around uh, an average value, uh, we have progress in society. And that interpretation has really carried on it, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, why am I forgetting his name? Um, the guy who came up with analysis of variance, it's slipping Fisher. my mind right now, Fisher. Uh, Fisher was again, very much uh, influenced by Galton's work, right? And so again, the, the analysis of variance, the emphasis on analyzing variances to understand something about average differences. And today we, we do that, you know, we compute means, but really we're interested in variation to tell us something about what's true on average. Uh, but unlike Quayle, we're actually interested in people and individual people, but we're still using these techniques that tell us something about only what's true on average, which, you know, this is something that Jim Lamiel's talked about uh, quite a bit as well. So there's so many examples, even just with the simple technical concept like the mean in statistics that where, you know, interpretation is such an important factor that we take for granted. On that example, I think is, an, is a good example of what I was saying earlier, which is that inside these seemingly objective categories like mean and variance mm -hmm. are smuggled really uh, important and sometimes problematic values. So, you know, Galton and Pearson and Fisher, they all held the eugenics chair, right? You know, they, so that these, these techniques weren't developed in a vacuum and for no reason. They were developed as part of a larger eugenic project, right? So, you know, some of that history uh, gets hidden in 
when we when we don't look at you know why we're doing things what our interpretations are what our purposes and goals are and and those things are important you know like in them hide the 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 our past sins let's say in the history of psychology and and even the most optimistic reaction to that fact a hope that maybe we could rescue these techniques from that historical context um as tempting as it might be to treat that as if it is transcending interpretation, it's simply a reinterpretation. It's it's offering a new sort of meaning. It, it seems like it seems like our discipline latches on to the technical and the algorithmic as if it can have that sort of separation from the interpretive. But what what I hear you saying, Donna, is that that permeates our engagement of these processes all the way through. Yeah, it's almost like the interpretation has been done by these figures that we're talking about, like Galton and Fisher and, and Quayle. I mean, if you read any of their works, they they make they do a lot of interpretation. You know, Fisher was very clear about the fact that he was interested in variation and what he meant by variation and how we should interpret the results, that they should only be at the aggregate level. Um, and he was very much influenced by Galton's work. So it's almost like the interpretation has been done and we take it for granted. So we, we're sort of taking these concepts at face value as if they don't come with any sort of interpretative meaning, but that's because we're just following a convention where we use the same uh, interpretation in, in regardless of context. Um, and I mean, the mean also presents a constrained example as well. There's only so many ways you can interpret the mean because it is a very technical concept but even with that when you take that technical concept and you put it in the hands of figures with political views and agendas you know there's a wonderful paper uh when josh was talking i was thinking of it's a 1976 paper by alan bus and it's called galton and the birth of differential psychology and eugenics and he talks about the social political and economic forces of the time that really influenced Galton's uh, development of this idea of eugenics. Um, and so it really contextualizes it within the political climate of the time and um, how it, it, for Galton, it would be beneficial to um, try to develop a science where um, we are thinking about the next generation of people, you know, contributing to the economy um, and, you know, working in different areas of the, the workforce with expertise in different areas and, and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, it's, it, it's easy for us to go back in history and think, yeah, you know, during this time, they were thinking this because of this, but we're living history as well, right? So, I mean, it, it, we should also consider the period of time we're living in and the tools that we're using and the interpretations we're making and how they're contextualized. Donna, I wonder if if you could, I, I'd really like to hear, you've written about how this comes up in a quantitative methods class. Mm. And I'd like to hear, maybe you talk a, a little bit about the, the moments where you ask the students to um, inject themselves uh, more explicitly into the, the process of doing research and what your experience with that, with those students has, has been like. Yeah. Um... So I, I guess I do try to just insert these things whenever I, I can. That's been sort of my tactic. And then somehow from that, I've come up with a more of a structured approach. So um, in my introductory statistics course, uh, 
I have a unit on measurement in psychology. And so the typical approach to measurement in psychology in an intro stats course is you'll learn about the definition of measurement that comes from SS Stevens. And then you'll learn about the four scales of measurement and you should be able to apply the four scales, you know, identify what type of scale you have and know when you can use uh, certain measures of central tendency or whatever, right? So you wouldn't calculate a mean with a nominal scale or something like that. Um, so I take it a little step further and I spend half of the class doing that stuff. And then we spend the second half of class talking about critiques of measurement. So um, I don't make them read any Joel Mitchell, but I uh, summarize his points in a way that I think um, is interesting and um, is accessible. And students are really fascinated by it and it sparks a lot of conversation. We do little activities where, you know, I'll give them a happiness scale and they have to rate levels of happiness and then we'll sort of use physical measurement instruments, maybe a ruler, and we'll compare the process of what it was like to write happiness versus to take an, an instrument and put it against something and, and actually obtain a measurement. And it will usually spark conversations around um, what the difference is between those types of measurements, if they're the same, um, uh, what sorts of interpretation had to happen in the process of assigning a number to a level of happiness. Um, we'll talk about, you know, cultural differences and how we interpret happiness, the concept of happiness. Um, and yeah, so I just, I, I sort of try to, in teaching about measurement, I also teach about the critiques of it, but in a way that is not hopefully too overwhelming. Um, I'm sure it is for some students. I don't think I've perfected it at this point. Um, but I, I have had feedback from some students that they really enjoy it, that it's actually something that's stuck with them through their career and as an undergraduate student. And sometimes they'll take upper level courses with me and they wanna go back to that and, and talk about it again. Um, another point where I sort of inject it is after we learn about measures of central tendency and the mean, we'll talk about interpreting the mean. And so I draw quite a bit from uh, David Backen's work and Jim Lamiel's work. So the difference between um, general type and aggregate type propositions. So what type of claims can you make based on the mean? If I calculate an average um, based on a aggregate of data, can I now make a claim about people in general? So can I say that people tend to do this more or can I say on average, um, this is what we saw. So just being able to distinguish between different types of interpretations and claims that you can make based on that. Um, and sometimes uh, during that conversation, we'll also talk about the historical pieces that come in. So I actually start each of my stats lectures with a quote from a historical figure. And I try to tie that into that lesson. So if we're talking about measurement, I'll start with a quote by Stevens saying that, you know, uh, numbers are just here for us. It's, this isn't the exact quote, but basically they're here for us to be used however we want them to use or you know measurement is basically pinning numbers on things um, or you know maybe I'll start with a quote by Fisher if we're talking about ANOVA um, so that just kind of starts the conversation and it also for me brings it um, brings to light the fact that there are people behind these tools that have thought about them and who've interpreted them and have theorized them about them and you know what, I'm sure some students couldn't care less, <laughs> which 
you know, I, I, I can't expect um, everybody to be interested in what I'm interested, in, but um, as an instructor, I guess I just have to weigh what I think is valuable for the students to learn. And for me, I, I think that trying to teach them this critical thinking earlier on um, can be valuable. I have to imagine that it's that it's interesting to students in a way that many of them aren't anticipating or expecting. Uh, because I mean, stats, methods, and measurement are the classes that so many students who are majoring in psych never knew they had to take, never wanted to take. <laughs> and the fact that we tend to present them as devoid of meaning, as separated from any kind of subjective intention or purpose, um, really makes it pretty meaningless to them. You know, maybe just a technical exercise that my teacher told me to do. So if they, you know, if they like puzzles, maybe, maybe that's interesting or something. But to make it part of a conversation, make it um, to highlight how it's part of the historical context, how it might be, how it might apply to something that really matters to them that they might care about, um, that, that seems really useful. It really connects to the rest of the curriculum too. Um, as you were talking, Brady, I was thinking, you know, we we often come to psychology thinking, I want to learn about people, and then we have to learn about using numbers. <laughs> yeah. But if we learn about how people have have um, used numbers and and set up this sort of methodology of using numbers, it it connects it to what we're actually, I think, here to do. Sometimes. Yeah, I've, I think one of the most uh, interesting lectures that I do with my history students is when I teach them about um, correlation and regression, which you would think would be really boring, right? But the original article where Galton you know, presented the, the first attempt, you know, the context in which he's doing it is that he's describing that there was like this fire. I'm probably going to get the details wrong here, and this is going to be on the internet forever. But anyway, there's a, there's like a fire, and the remains of the people in the fire were destroyed, and so they couldn't identify whose bodies they were, but they had the medical records of those who had been in the fire, and so he was what the solution he came up with was like measuring the lengths of the forearm bones, and mm -hmm. then putting those into a correlation and regression, you know, like in a matrix, a bivariate data plot, to try and plot to who who did the forearm bone belong to based on their height. So I have the students measure their forearm bones. I bring like a ruler to class. And then I have them put their numbers in this thing at this program I made. And then we like create a plot to see, to show the regression line and then talk about how, and you know, I teach it to forensic college. So they love, this is one of the like foundational documents of forensic science actually. So yeah. it's like to them, it's really fascinating to put it in historical context. Whereas, you know, when they learned in stats they absolutely do not remember anything about it. That's so cool. I might steal that from you if you don't mind. <laughs> sure, yeah, I can send you whatever I have. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, if you have any of the, if you have any instructional materials connected to the stuff on the mean and some of the other examples you're talking about, that would be great too. If, um, if you have yeah, anything I... that someone else could use to sort of try and replicate what you've done. Yeah, I could share. I actually became so fed up with statistics textbooks that I wrote my own. I don't know why I forced myself to do that. But um, yeah, I just, you know, I well, it started with just being irritated because I was constantly saying, well, your text says this, but, you know, really this. And so I started writing my own notes and then it just kind of snowballed into 
um, which is nice to have now because now I have it and I, I don't need to rely on it. But so I've just kind of inserted in, you know, on the chapter on measures of central tendency, um, I've inserted in a section on interpreting aggregate level statistics. You know, what's the difference between an aggregate type claim and a general type claim? You know, general type claims are true or are, are common to all and aggregate type claims are, are true on average. And then so in class, I'll give examples. I mean, you can find them everywhere of psychologists conflating these, right? So, you know, we found that people are more likely to do this than this, right? No, on average, we can make this claim, but it's not that people are more likely. So, I mean, you know, it's it's Jim Lamiel's argument that information about aggregates is information about no one. <laughs> it's demography. Um, is this and, a published book uh, or, or is it just like your own that you use? Um, no, I, I'm happy to share it, but uh, I haven't published it. I just disseminate it electronically to my students. Um, but I, I'm happy, I, I share it with people that, you know, I, I, I know and, and who are interested in it. But I, um, yeah, I, I feel like once I publish it, then it becomes complicated. I want to keep it really flexible and open and able to give freely to students. And so I'm happy keeping it like that. Yeah, I understand that the book that I've been working on, that's part of why I've chosen to publish with Cambridge mm -hmm. University Press because they have a, this green open access policy where you can use an unformatted version of your book freely. Okay, that's so good to know. Yeah. Some publishers do that sort of thing. Cambridge, as far as I can tell, is, has the, the most open policy. Okay, that's, well, that's good to know. Yeah. I think it's it's pretty cool that you've got that book where you're able to kind of bring some depth that the standard textbooks aren't bringing. And my, my general assumption would be that this would lead your students to be thinking more deeply and thinking um, at, a, at a higher level about statistical concepts. And at the same time, I, I always worry when I bring in these critical elements that wherever it may represent a break from the orthodoxy that my students might unintentionally trip over that as they encounter other professors or as they go forward in the field. Has that come up for you at all? Is that something you've had to navigate? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, I haven't had to deal with it as a result of them taking my class, but you know, for example, I'm going through I have honors students who are doing projects, for example, and their criteria for their honors course is that they have to identify their independent and dependent variables and explain, you know, the experimental design. And usually my honors students aren't doing that. So it's like, okay, explain how this isn't that type of study. And I, I do wonder though, I haven't talked to my students about it, but I do wonder if, you know, in my classes, I'm telling them, you're not supposed to pick your method before you come up with your research question. But I know from my experience as an undergrad, I was forced to come up with an experimental research question. I mean, most students in intro research methods courses are forced to do that. And so I do wonder uh, how that is for them or maybe, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna have to deal with it down the road, but I wonder if any of you have had experience with that. And Josh, you mentioned your, you know, like writing in first person, that sort of thing. Seems like that could that could come back to bite you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah, you're right. That I'm always thinking about whether I'm creating problems for my students when I teach them. You know, what in good faith I believe to be the best interpretation 
the best account of science, knowing full well that that might conflict with their advisors or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm, I'm, what I'm always on the lookout for are ways of kind of doing both, like, like um, teaching them things that maybe the other professors wouldn't teach them, but that are still consistent with broadly acknowledged professional guidelines mm -hmm. or standards. So the first person, for example, like, um, you know, the APA style manuals tells us that we should write in active voice, right? So yeah. I use that as a strategy with my students. You know, I, I do exercise with them where I get them to revise their own writing um, so that they inject their agency back into it so that they use more active voice. And in the process, you know, they end up using more first person because it's almost impossible to, to write in active voice without using first person, right? right. Especially in a research report. Or like something that Brady, I think, um, taught me how to do was you was focusing on questionable research practices as a way of injecting some critical thinking or like using history. So I, I feel like I have to find these little, not really sneaky, but kind of sneaky ways of injecting critical thinking and injecting kind of a hermeneutic view into my teaching in ways that I feel like if their if their advisors or their other professors object to them, like, hey, I'm just following the APA style manual, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. I think I've all. I'm also just very explicit. You know, I'll just say, you know what, this is the conventional way we do it in psych, so you're going to encounter this in your other courses, but I'm going to tell you an alternative way, and you're going to have to reconcile that in in your other course. Um, and. I mean, yeah, I haven't had any students give me feedback after taking other courses, but maybe it's, I'm still young in my career, so maybe I'll come upon that um, as I go forward. We were talking earlier about a qualitative methods course. Do you teach that at the graduate level? No, it's at the undergraduate level, and um, I'm so excited that I was able, I did not think it would run. Um, and, you know, I, I got the support of the department and I was able to do it. It's a fourth year course. Um, and I'm hoping to make it a regular thing. Um, and it's been, it's been fantastic. Yeah, the students are really excited to be able to do qualitative methods because many of them would have had to originally go to a different department if they wanted to do qualitative methods. Um, but we can actually focus on the field of psychology. And so, yeah, it's, it's uh i'm really excited uh, about it you might not have the answer to this question but i i wonder what you anticipate your students who've completed that course where you anticipate them going next and what you anticipate them doing with that having having taken that class do they go yeah. to grad school for example and and end up wanting to do a a a question that requires qualitative methods or i mean do they end up sorry investigating questions that demand or qualitative methods and then because that might be a place where I guess where they experience that tension between what's more mainstream and what might be a little bit more outside of the mainstream. Yeah it's interesting that you asked that because I struggled with that quite a bit when I was developing the course and I actually ended up devoting like the first four weeks of the class to just the place of qualitative methods in psychology. So we'll talk about you know the history of qualitative quantitative methods in psych and uh, you know, what some of the divide has been. And, you know, I tell the students that, you know, this isn't your typical qualitative methods course because you're psychology students and you're gonna have to navigate being a qualitative researcher within a discipline that doesn't necessarily support you being a qualitative researcher all the time. 
Um, and so the first assignment that they do is really just them reflecting on their own epistemological assumptions when it comes to research. And it, it you know, I, I really push them and many of them struggle. Um, but, you know, by the end of it, I, I want them to reconcile what they think the place of qualitative research is in psychology. Um, because when they go to do qualitative research, they have to be able to defend themselves as qualitative researchers. And if they can be reflective, understand their own assumptions, understand why they're doing qualitative research, that will just give them a leg up. Now, what will they actually do? Um, I think maybe some students will go into counseling or other areas where maybe qualitative research is a little bit more accepted. Um, I, I know that, you know, there has been a push lately for qualitative research, especially mixed methods research is gaining more momentum. So I don't think that, you know, I think people are becoming more open to it. I know that in my own department, many people aren't necessarily opposed to it, but they just don't know what it is. Um, and so, you know, me being somebody who said, oh, I can teach it, and they're hearing so much about it from other areas, they're thinking, okay, let's give it a shot. Let's see what it brings to our, our students. Um, and you know what, the reception has been good. I mean, some of my students are doing um, theses where they're doing a mixed methods project. And so they're using the skills they learn in the course to create a mixed methods sort of project and their supervisors are open to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess they do have to tread lightly depending on what area of research they're going into, who their supervisor might be if they go on to graduate school. Um, but I'm hoping that I'm setting them up for that, that I'm not just, you know, I'm not just pretending, oh, this is all wonderful. And once you get into graduate school, everyone's going to be so happy about the fact that you're doing qualitative research. You know, I'm very transparent about the fact that it's quite marginalized in our field and that they have to be prepared oftentimes to defend that. Um, there are actually a lot more resources now in the mainstream field for, yeah. for qualitative researchers, you know, that they, they've APA for you know, for the first time published guidelines for qualitative mm -hmm. reporting. I saw just the other day, I was looking at the APAs trying to put together guidelines for a Psych 101 course, and it talks about qualitative methods and the guidelines for the Psych 101 course. So mm -hmm. I think it, you know, there's a lot more openness than there used to be. I think, you know, maybe when we were grad students, we felt the pressure and where we've internalized that pressure that against qualitative methods, but I think it's, you know, the field is opening up a lot. I think this question though highlights some of what we were talking about earlier about the challenge of valuing the interpretive, right? Because I mean, that's part of what these students might face if they, um, if they appreciate what they're learning in your qualitative research class. Um, what we started talking about is how quantitative methods have this same quality of, of interpretation, right? And mm -hmm. so the, the fact that we as a field have, um, minimize that, we've covered it over, we've tended to hold up quantitative methods as if they are objective, um, that they, they have this, um, it, it's, it's almost as if the, that, that is their big strength. And if, if what we've been talking about, that, that they are interpretive, if that's true, it, it seems like it, it means at least a couple things. Either they're not that great because they're interpretive, right? Or, or that the interpretive really might bring some value to quantitative research 
in ways that hasn't been recognized or or appreciated. Um, and and I, I wonder if maybe there are some ways that you're already doing this or that we can think about helping students to articulate. Uh, like, well, just one example that comes to mind is the questionable research practices, that the replication crisis has really highlighted the fact that researchers make a whole lot of decisions that we haven't been shining light on and that these decisions really matter. Um, and that might not even sound interpretive to a lot of critics of questionable research mm -hmm. practices, but it is, right? And, 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 sh and showing that piece of the research process seems to lead to better quantitative research. So I'm wondering if there are similar things that, you know, whether it's in the ways you're talking about the mean or um, measurement that we can highlight the value of the interpretive yeah, I mean, I, so I just want to clarify too that, you know, I'm not against quantitative methods or, you know, I'm not for, you know, abandoning measurement and completely, you know, moving away from them. I think that they are powerful tools, but that we need to understand when to use them and when, when not to use them. Um, and so I think if we bring that interpretative element into it, as you said, I think it will only enrich our use of those tools because we'll be better equipped to use them. We will understand more fully the, uh, our uses of them and, and the consequences of our uses of them. Um, and I, I think it will really enrich the field. Um, it's interesting to me because when I, I try to study the history of qualitative research, and what I tend to always find, I don't know what you guys find, but it's, it doesn't really have a history besides, you know, in the 1960s, there was a bit of like a paradigm war and whatnot that broke out in some of the social sciences. And now we have, you know, this movement towards qualitative research, but it's not that people weren't doing what could be considered qualitative research prior to that time. You know, people were using personal documents quite a bit in, in the research process. Um, and so for me, I often find that this dichotomy of quantitative versus qualitative is upholding this dichotomy of interpretation versus no interpretation in, in a lot of ways as well. And I often question whether it's useful. It seems to be a useful dichotomy when we talk about political differences in academia um, and sometimes ideological differences. But when it comes to practicing as a researcher, I often do not find it that useful. And so when I say I want to inject interpretation into quantitative methods, I guess I really have a hidden agenda where I, I want us to move beyond this positioning ourselves as quantitative or qualitative researchers and to really learn how to use these methods to in, in the best way possible to address our research questions, but to be reflective of our own assumptions at the same time as well and how that those might influence our uses. Yeah, it, it really it really seems like if we can see that distinction as maybe not being so valuable, um, that that what you're saying about the interpretive really becomes a lot clearer. That that the task of making sense of data in whatever form it presents itself um, it is a common thread running through those and. Um, what, whatever tools make the most sense, you know, that's what's there for us. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think it goes both parts, you know, you often read qualitative researchers discuss how they're a part of an interpretative community, 
But if we close the doors to that community to quantitative researchers, then we're just perpetuating this perceived division based on subjectivity and objectivity. Which, you said the politics matters here, right? Because yeah. the, and the history of the politics matters because the, the, re, the, the reason why qualitative researchers, you know, em, emphasize the, the interpretive elements of their research is because, you know, they've had to make space for themselves in a discipline where yeah. there wasn't any, right? And the reason why, you know, and quantitative researchers de-emphasize the interpretive because politically that was been the expedient thing to do, right? Because if you reveal the interpretive elements of quantitative interpretation, right, you are essentially admitting that you don't have all the answers, that there's doubt and complexity. And, you know, that, that's the kind of pushback I've experienced a lot when I've tried to critique objectivism because... The, the moral authority of science rests on a kind of a, a strategic deception about the, about the fact that, you know, you know we, we hide the degree of interpretation involved in science because that lends authority to scientific claims and no one wants to give that authority up. They're afraid mm -hmm. that that will let the barbarians into the gate and then suddenly, you know, we'll have anarchy. Well, yeah, the barbarians are all relativists. Fear of <laughs> relativism. That's right. <laughs> Maybe that's a good place to end. I, I hate that we're out of time here, but um, thank you all so much. Thank you, Donna, for, for coming and talking with us today. Yeah, thanks so much. This was really fun. And I, I actually, I got some great insights as well. I'm going to apply to my teaching. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you again soon on another episode of Teaching Otherwise.